You're listening to Car Seat Questions, a podcast for parents of curious kids. I'm Lauren. And I'm Eddie. And if you're anything like us, you either have a kid or you care for a kid with questions. Questions about all sorts of things. So for the next half hour, hop into the passenger seat, buckle your belt, and become childlike with us as the Lord takes us where he wants us to go. Enjoy the show. Today we're joined uh, by a dear friend of ours, Dr. Preston Hill. Uh, we have been friends for a few years you now, I would say. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to even think. Before we were, before any of us were married. Yeah, so at least seven years at minimum. That's true. Mm-hmm. Preston yes. and I were floor mates, mm-hmm. um, and we have the pleasure of talking to Preston today uh, about a very, um, it's a very sensitive topic, but I think it's beneficial that we talk about this because I personally think um, we don't talk enough about this topic, especially especially um, children or adults who have gone through this. Uh, we don't talk about it enough. And so today we're going to be talking about how do we interact with our children about divorce. And so I'm going to let Preston introduce himself, uh, give us a little bit about your educational background um, and what you're currently doing um for work absolutely well i just want to say it is really fun to be talking with like you said dear friends on a podcast setting it's really fun to mix work and play because this is like jobs and professional stuff but you're also friends and also moody made one of the best decisions ever by asking you to (laughs) to do this podcast car seat questions um did I get that right? Is that the yep, right name? That's Carsey right. Questions. Yeah, got it. Um, so my ba- bit of my background is went to Moody, did my undergrad there, and then um, Chesney, my wife, our friend. We're all like friends <laughs> all who friends. went to Moody and then we got married and now we're still friends. Um, met Chesney, we got married, and then we promptly moved to Scotland where I did my master's degree and PhD uh, at the University of St. Andrews in divinity which is a lovely ambiguous term that means (laughs) a lot of different things it means i studied theology i studied a lot of um trauma traumatology that meant a lot of focus in the dialogue and the intersection between theology and psychology that ultimately brought me to where i'm at now which is an assistant professor of integrative theology at richmond graduate university we have a school of counseling and a school of ministry i teach in both and um, I direct our doctor of ministry program. So I get to work with doctoral students, but I also spend a lot of my time teaching theology to therapists. That's mm-hmm. really what the bulk of my time is spent doing. That's been an incredible gift because it means I have to, I have to s- make really complex theological ideas and concepts simple. Mm-hmm. I have to make them practical because at the end of the day, these are people that are going to be sitting with yeah, families who are going through, you know, if they're a marriage and family therapist, mm-hmm. uh, a family who's going through divorce, and how do I talk to my children about uh, divorce or any number of issues that come up in counseling? So I think that's been a gift for me to, uh, my students have forced me to make my theology clear and practical. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, that's really what it should be. It should matter, it should yeah. make a difference. Um, 
So that's really the majority of my world is being a counselor educator and um, also engaging in clinical practice myself and um, also just being very involved in our church here. I think that's mm-hmm. another part of it too, is the pastoral element of all of mm-hmm. this. Yeah. So that's sort of my, my background and where I'm at currently. Yeah. Well, if, if you're the, if we're the perfect host for the show, then you're the perfect guest <laughs> for us to be talking about this. Um, and as you know, Preston, for our listeners who don't know, uh, I'm a child of divorce. And uh, when we were going through the topics for the season, I thought this would be a good one. Because again, we don't, I feel like this doesn't get talked about enough, um, especially in today's society, where it's becoming a lot more common um, mm. for divorce to take place. And so um, I thought it would be good to share a personal story of mine and it's going to be about um, how I came to find out my parents were going to be divorced. And I do want to say upfront that I love my parents. I love my parents dearly. Um, They were doing the best that they can and the best that they knew how at the time. And I know that they love me. I knew that they love me at that time. And they were doing what what they thought was best for me and my sister mm-hmm. in that time. So I want to be very clear and upfront about that. But I also want to be honest about what happened and what and the experience that I had of talking about this. Um, so this was, let's see, oh boy, this was back in 2001. Um, I was at a family's house for Memorial Day weekend. And I was playing kickball and I sprained my elbow. I didn't really know it until the following days because, you know, after, you know, when you have adrenaline still, you don't, you're invincible at that age. (laughs) Um, And uh, a couple of days later, um, I'm, you know, I'm back at school. Um, At the time, uh, my mom had worked at the school that we attended. And so I told her like, hey, my arm is starting to really bother me. You know, can we just like go to the doctor and check this out? So pulled me out of school, went to the doctor, found out that it was, my arm was sprained. And so I spent a few days in a sling, uh, you know, no big deal. But after the doctor, I I clearly remember this, we went to a McDonald's for lunch and my mom was like, Hey, I have to, I have to tell you something. And I was like, okay, what are you going to tell me? And she was like, there's going to come a time where your father and I are not going to be together anymore. And at this age, I'm 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 12, so I kind of get where she's getting at, but I'm not entirely sure what that actually means. Um, but it did st- it did like help me start connect connecting some of the dots that were happening at home. And one of the biggest things that was happening at home was that my parents were starting to sleep in separate rooms, in separate beds. But now being a husband i can understand why spouses would sleep in different rooms <laughs> in different beds um so i didn't really think much much of it at the time but i was like okay i guess that started that's starting to make sense now and then so i asked her i was like what do you what does that actually mean like what are you talking about you guys are not going to be together because again in my in my mind hey my parents are going to be together forever because they're married um and she said well your father and I are going to get a divorce. And something that really stuck with me um, up until this day was that 
they had been planning to be divorced for like over a year. Mm. Um, so this mm. was already happening. Mm. Um, again, which home life started to make sense after she told me this. Um, so I was like, okay, I didn't really know what to think. I didn't know how to think or what or to make of what was being told to me at the time. Um, so I just kind of like went back to school. Um, the rest of it is kind of a, kind of a blur. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's like on purpose that my conscious just kind of erased the next couple of days mm. out of my memory, just because I don't know, could have been bad things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't, I just don't remember feeling, um, anything after that was told to me up until they, up until my parents told my sister, which was like a few days after that. And my sister was nine at, at the time. And she, she took it really hard. Like she came like running to me crying. Um, mm. and just was like confused and like, why is this happening? You know, like, did you know about this? Like, what are we going to do? And I think what, what made the situation worse at the time was how uh, the, the, the decision that was made uh, for like the next few months of our lives. And I think that's what really um, did not sit right with, you know, with us. And again, I love my parents and I can understand why they did what they did. But as an adult, looking back, I don't necessarily agree with what they did. Um, and I'll explain that in a minute. And so after they told my sister what happened, they told us that they would be, uh, that we would be going to Puerto Rico, uh, and Mm. be staying with my grandparents for the entire summer. And again, for listeners, I don't know. I am, uh, Hispanic, Puerto Rican. My family uh, has lived in Puerto Rico. My parents are from Puerto Rico. Uh, and so at the time that's where my grandparents lived. Um, and so we were going to spend the entire summer, uh, with them. And so now looking back at that, as an adult, it's, it's hard for me to understand because in my mind, like I need my mom and dad the most in that point in my life, right? Like trying to understand what divorce means or trying to understand that they're not going to be in the same space anymore. And we have to go and spend weekends with one and spend most of our time with the other. Um, the times that my sister and I would need access to them. We weren't going to have that because we were going to be so far away. Um, and so in that story, um, Preston, is there anything that you see or that you hear that is common, a common response, Mm. uh, for children our age? Um, when, again, when being talked about divorce, you know, uh, is there anything that really um, sticks out to you that's like, hey, like this is actually a or an appropriate response, you know, to what to the information that was given to you? I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Thank you for sharing your life and your experience. Like it's just so valuable. My mind's going a million places because you shared a story. So I'm just struck mm-hmm. with how important how important stories are. I think it's worth saying that, um, you know, this you're raising a great issue, which is that talking about divorce um, raises it raises questions of what to do when it's happening now, but it also raises questions for people of 
experience for those who are now adults and that that's happened to them in the past. So that's my story as well. I think you and I have talked about that, that my parents divorced when I was four. Mm -hmm. So for me, I do have some distinct memories that I just don't know if those memories would be as distinct if the mm -hmm. events were, weren't so emotionally strong because I was mm -hmm. four. Yeah. I don't know many people that have distinct memories like I do mm -hmm. from uh, as a four-year-old. I remember that. So I'm struck. There's a just when we're thinking about things we remember, there's our access to memory is always, we always remember things better when there was a bigger emotional impact or imprint of the moment. Cause we get back into our, we remember how we felt in our bodies when it happened. So it might be that the days after we're just returning to normal, but it could be that something about the event was like overwhelming and, mm. you know, it's pretty well established, you know, and this is where we get into the language of trauma, but it's really well established that when events um, or just any kind of experience or circumstance is too much for us to bear, the mind has a strange way of helping us to escape it, just pushing it out of conscious awareness. And that affects how we remember things. And it's mm -hmm. not like, it's not like a light switch. It's not like, Memory is normal, but then if something's traumatic, then you don't have access to it. It's more like a dimmer switch. Like some things may be a little hazier than others if they're just a little bit too intense. And so the way you describe it, it sounds like, yeah, I think something to your question that's common. Um, common, I think, based on interactions I've had with colleagues here, um, based on the material I teach, based on the research I've done, based on my experience and, and the experience of others I've heard anecdotally, I do think there are some common themes that you describe. One of them would be um, a frustration, not necessarily even with the fact of divorce as so much as how the parents handle it. Mm. I think that's really interesting the way you told that story. If I heard you right, there was, there was kind of a focusing of a frustration with how it was handled. Um, obviously, Obviously, children are upset about the fact of divorce. That almost goes without saying. Mm -hmm. But the experience can be drastically different if parents handle it a specific way. Usually the memories are, they mishandled it. Not, mm -hmm. I'm mad they got divorced. I'm more so mad the way they handled the divorce. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that stands out as you describe it. I think when we first even emailed you these questions, your first point was, and not in an unkind way, but this is not even how kids would ask these questions, <laughs> <laughs> which is true, um, because we're obviously thinking about these questions as adults. And hmm. so I wonder from you, like, what, how do you perceive kids are thinking about this and asking these questions? Kids are awesome. They, <laughs> they see the world in ways that we've forgotten and mm -hmm. at ways that are best, we yeah. see the world again. Like we long for experiences where we see the world like kids. And that's because kids get it to the heart of really what it means to be human. Um, mm -hmm. I'm struck by how much of like educating counselors or just the material you teach to become a counselor or a therapist is really just getting insights of getting back into the mind of a child, mm -hmm. like human growth and development, um, or even just attachment theory. That mm -hmm. may be something people have heard of. Um, attachment theory, this, this hugely influential, I don't think there's any more influential school of thought mm -hmm. in the world of counseling. Um, 
And it's because there's a powerful insight there. And one of the founders of attachment theory, you know, to answer your question about the questions that, that we were thinking about prior to this, one of the founders of attachment theory, Donald Winnicott, he's famous. I love this quote from him. He says, there's no such thing as a baby, by which he means we like to think we're different from them. Mm. And in reality, you know what every child is really saying to every parent is love me or I will make you pay. (laughs) (laughs) That is every baby that wants breast milk. Mm -hmm. How different is that from what I say to my spouse on a daily basis as the subtext? Mm -hmm. Um, Love me or, or you won't hear at the end of it. You know, that's what we all want. So we're all really just like babies. So I think getting back into the mind of a child, like you say, you know, kids, and it depends on the age. That's part of the answer. Yeah. Um, so like a 12-year-old, they're going to be able to understand more complex ideas about cause and effect. They're going to be able to understand, like you were telling that story, Eddie. Yeah, now I get why you're sleeping in different beds. Mm-hmm. You know, but a younger child, um, even more pre-adolescent, they don't know how to distinguish as much cause and effect. And a big one is they don't know how to differentiate themselves from the world. Mm. They think that their needs are the needs of others. They don't know how to differentiate. It's from a self-centered perspective, but I don't mean that in a moralizing way. Mm -hmm. I just mean it in, they just don't have the capacity to think from the perspective of other people. So that really affects how we communicate these ideas to them when you're talking with kids about divorce on that spectrum or about any issue that's sensitive and difficult. Um, We don't want to lie to them. Mm-hmm. that's the worst thing. We always want to tell them the truth, honestly, but we want to tell them the truth in a way that they can metabolize, in a way mm-hmm. that they can understand. And for them, that means think about it from think about it from their perspective and think about it. Think about it in a very young way. Yeah, something we were talking about earlier today was um, we don't want to discredit a child's intelligence right Mm. and i feel like it's really easy to do that right and and a part of that comes from this idea of well children are inferior to us you know Mm -hmm. and it's just like well no they like they are equal you know Mm -hmm. they're they're just as much as human as we are um yes like we we've been tasked to to care for them and to teach them Right. But they should never be seen as inferior beings to us. Oh, I agree. A hundred percent. Children are brilliant and it's because they're not burdened with intelligence. Mm -hmm. Seriously. Our intelligence, our language gets in the way of things that are Mm -hmm. at the heart of the matter. You ever have those moments where you can get just fixated in an argument with someone. And then at the end of it, you're like, why are we even arguing or what are we even arguing about? Because it's more about the heart of the matter is, it's less the content, it's more the presence you're Mm -hmm. having with someone. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that can actually be an encouragement to parents as they're thinking about how to talk with kids about divorce. It really doesn't matter. This is going to be strange to say or to hear, (laughs) but it really doesn't matter what you say to them. Mm. It really doesn't. What matters is how you say it. Because that's what they're going to remember. They're going to remember the emotional impact of the moment. And so if you're avoidant and embarrassed about the situation and trying to shuffle it off Mm -hmm. to other plans or other people, 
they're going to pick up on that. Children can read our mail. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not tricking them. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to just be as congruent and present as possible with these kids and be honest with them. Try to speak to them in simple terms, but honest terms. And I think the mm-hmm. most important thing, if we're thinking about like care for, for kids is the same things we all want. Like you said, we're not better than them. What are the things that we want the most in life? We want reassurance and we want the world to be predictable. Mm-hmm. That's what human behavior really is. A lot of it's organized around. Mm-hmm. We, we want to know what to expect and uh, we want to be reassured in that. So the, the best thing you can do as a parent, this is like industry standard, I think, for this kind of thing is just reassure the child and let them know they just need a lot of reassurance that this doesn't have to do with our love for you. Mm. This doesn't have to do, this isn't your fault. This doesn't have to do, none of this impacts our love or care for you. We're both going to keep loving and caring for you. Mm -hmm. Like it's so obvious to us, we don't even register it. But for kids, they don't know how to voice this to us. But what they're really thinking is, are you still going to feed me? Mm -hmm. Are you still going to house me and clothe me? Am I going to be okay? That's -hmm. their question. You got to reassure them and say, we are, nothing in the world will ever change that will keep taking care of you. They really need to know that and to hear it over and over again. But the other thing is consistency. Mm -hmm. They need to know what to expect and they need to... Um, have that consistently implemented. I mean, the biggest thing that helps children form healthy ways of relating in the world, I mean, consistently, the the literature shows, is um, that they can predict their world. Mm. Because when you can predict something, you can know what to do. You're confident in it. Mm-hmm. So they need that security. That's important. How do you, how would you suggest to parents to like practical ways to provide that security and safety and comfort during that time? Well, practically, I think any, any ways that you can show the children that, um, any ways that you can show them that you're more committed to their well-being than to your problems in the issue mm-hmm. of the divorce. Yeah. That's going to be a powerful message to them. So mm-hmm. something that's very powerful is. And I even still remember this, like for me growing up, I remember my mom and dad are so different now than more now than ever. And they hardly ever, I hardly ever saw them interact, but there were times when they came together as a united front, not because they liked each other, not because they cared for each other. Mm-hmm. They really were dead to each other mm-hmm. and for all intensive purposes, but they weren't dead to me and they agreed together. They both cared for me. You know, this is the thing that still unites them. If you as parents can recognize, be able to say to yourself, like, we love our child more than we love our child more than we hate each other. Mm. I think kids understand that. They know that. They can read that. So if you can come together, just something as simple as like both parents sitting down on the couch together, sit down on the same couch. I mean, kids are visual. Kids are spatial. Mm. That's their world. They think emotionally and spatially. That's how things work. So to parents, like when you're communicating this to them, do it together. If, if possible, mm-hmm. some people, yeah. this just isn't possible for, and that's fine, but we do the best with what we have. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if you can sit together, talk together, talk in agreement, um, don't blame each other in front of them. Don't mm-hmm. bring them into your stuff. 
it's not their burden to bear and they're not developmentally capable of bearing it. Um, but you know what, if you're in a position where you can't do that, you can still have the other person present, um, emotionally or by the way that you honor them on behalf of your child. Mm. Um, and one way to think of it is, you know, maybe this person isn't your spouse anymore or they're not your partner anymore, but they're still the parent of your child. Mm -hmm. And that's a way of connecting them Mm -hmm. to your child in a way that's, it's not about the parent. You don't need to be good to them for them, be good to them for your child and only Mm -hmm. as much as you need to for your child. So this is a new way of living and moving forward in the world. So you got to kind of alter your way of thinking a bit, but I, I've found an incredibly powerful motivating force for people can be their love for their child. Most parents really love their children and most of them would do just about anything. And most parents feel really guilty for the whole thing. Yeah. So there's already like this huge amount of guilt going into it and they're trying to figure out how to navigate telling their child this while they're feeling, first of all, they're probably feeling unloved by their spouse. And then also like their needs weren't met by their spouse and they Mm -hmm. have this enormous amount of guilt for their child. I can't imagine like the weight that a parent feels when they're having to go through a divorce and with a child too. Mm -hmm. And probably shame too. And the presence of the child is in some sense Mm -hmm. a memory of what was and a memory of what has failed. Mm -hmm. And so for some parents, sadly, the child becomes a, the child becomes subliminally kind of, um, an object of payback for the mm. parent because they're frustrated at the reminder. Again, no yeah. parent would consciously say this, yeah. but that's how it works out in practice. Mm-hmm. Like kids get blamed for the sins of their parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but some other parents would just avoid it because they just feel shame because the child's yeah. just a reminder. Um, that's another point I would want to say is I think, again, and this isn't just to be nice to yourself, but I'm saying like show kindness to yourself if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your child Yeah. because your shame's going to get in the way of you loving your child. Mm-hmm. So try to show kindness to yourself on behalf of other people you love if you can't do mm-hmm. it for yourself. Yeah, I think, and, and I think you've already started to, to hint at this, but w- like, what are some of the common like misconceptions um, about divorce or maybe some of like and again, or even like some of like the common mistakes and you already start to hint at that, but can we like dive a little bit deeper into what those might look like? And you mean misconceptions like that people have who are going through it or mis- misconceptions that people have toward those who are going through divorce? I think like misconception about divorce in general, like mm. what, again, like what does that, what does that look like? Or how does that, how does that play out, you know, for us? For us, meaning kids? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, right. Oh, well, yeah, definitely. I, I do think something, and I don't know if this is kind of what you're, what you're getting at, but I, I do think something that comes to mind as you say that is, and I think this may be especially true for maybe more traditional or conservative Christian populations, that there is this, there's this um, focus on the family sort of um, ideology, which is not bad, but it can lead to a kind of stigmatization of anything that doesn't fit that norm. And you, I think you do have similar with like what many single people struggle with in church. Mm-hmm. 
is the sense that I'm a um, subpar citizen because mm-hmm. I'm not married and don't have a family that can pose mm-hmm. for Easter pictures. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, blended families feel that as well. I think yeah. divorced parents feel that. I think children of divorced parents feel that. Even though, like you say, it's this weird mixture, right? Because it's stigmatized, but it's also incredibly common. Mm-hmm. So we do have this. I think that may contribute to why it's not discussed. Um, and then you have the issue of, like a lot of Christians are okay with divorce being mm-hmm. a thing. They recognize it has its place or it's, it's something that we have to learn to live with as a reality in the world, but also acknowledge it's not the way it's supposed to be. Right. And I think that just creates a tension for many, many people that feels unbearable and it's just a code of silence about it. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of embarrassing. Yeah. We don't talk yeah. about it because um, it's less than the experience we all should have. And I just say that contributes to the shame. Um, mm. You know, secrecy and shame just breed, they breed um, tragedy. You know, yeah. nothing good grows in silence or secrecy. Mm-hmm. So can we find a way to normalize it? Can we find a way to recognize that blended families or broken families have just as much capacity to bear the glory of God? Um, and actually, if what we say we believe is true, they might have more mm-hmm. capacity to do that. Yeah. yeah like can, recognizing that it's, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Like this is not the way it was supposed to be in the garden. There's just, there's something wrong here, but also we can still love and accept and care for and be family with those who are blended families, those who have been divorced or of families of divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can, I can relate with the, the camp that might, again, just might never talk about divorce, right? Because it was just this bad, evil mm-hmm. thing, right? And you just like never talked about it. Like that's that's kind of like what my, like I grew up Pentecostal. So like my traditional like Pentecostal background, I was just like, you're together till you die. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, no matter, like no matter what the circumstance, right? And now, you know, like, again, like you said, it it, it has its place, Right. And uh, in certain circumstances or in certain contexts, like it does have its place. Um, but yeah, I, I can totally relate to the side that would just, again, never talk about it, never think about it because it was just never an option. Right. It was just like never a way out. Yeah. I, it's one of the most harmful things, isn't it? That we, we fail to make a distinction between what ought to be and what is. And then we somehow have this tacit agreement that only what ought to be is what we're allowed to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so just because you're talking about something or taking it seriously or recognizing its existence, it doesn't mean you, you don't have to have any kind of moral commitment about that thing or moral judgment about that thing. Mm-hmm. You can love and care and affirm the reality of these things without ever getting caught up in passing a judgment. So that's when our yeah, I guess our theology gets in the way of our psychology mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah. Um, so on the other side of like what's a misconception, what would you say is the one thing, the most important thing you would want a child who is walking through a divorce with their family? What's the most important thing you would say to them? You want to get one answer, okay? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it depends on the age of the child, mm-hmm. man. If the, if the child's... Um, adolescent or middle school or beyond, maybe I would, 
well, I'll say it this way. If they were younger than that, I probably wouldn't say anything. I would probably just uh, sit with them. I'd mm. probably hug them. <laughs> Depending mm-hmm. on how well I know them, I would probably, I probably wouldn't even talk about it. I would just distract them with mm-hmm. a corrective experience of some sort where I'd just go out and have outrageous fun with them. Mm. Um, and just to let them know, even in the midst of this, this isn't all there is to your mm-hmm. life. And uh, I'm struck by thinking about, and I will answer the if you know if they are the other question to to that. But I'm just reminded that like some some of the most incredible books I've ever read are about like trauma and the horrendous evils that humans are capable of committing, the atrocities. And I'm just always amazed that every trauma psychologist I've ever read talks about the the fragility of human nature, but also the incredible resilience of human nature mm-hmm. that so many survivors, even if they have extreme disorders from not divorce, but from more tragic events in life, they still are able to name and grab onto. And those, those single moments when someone showed them kindness, mm-hmm. they stick with people. There's something about our human nature that just gravitates towards goodness and has a way of grabbing onto it. Yeah. Really good, genuine, sweet care. We have a way of grabbing it and letting it nurture us. Mm-hmm. So I would want to offer that. But if a child is wondering and having questions about all this, was it the one thing? To, you only got one thing Just to say one. to them? <laughs> oh, man. I guess hmm, that's a, such a good question. I think probably... Um, I'd probably just try to as sincerely as possible communicate to them that um, you are good. Yeah, you are good and this is not your fault. Mm. I think, you know, and that's an answer you commonly hear, but I do think it's a really powerful, cathartic, important thing. Yeah. Right. Remember earlier I was talking about kids want to predict the world and make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And for children, and it makes sense, but it's just so much easier to make sense of the situation in a false way than to live with a situation that doesn't have an answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are mom and dad not together? But they're not capable of the unanswerable theodicy of the problem of evil and that there is no answer. They're not capable of that. What they want to do is say, well, it must be my fault. Mm-hmm. And that's understandable because if it's my fault, I have a reason for why it's happening. And that helps me bear it. It's a mechanism, a coping mechanism. But I just want to help them know help help start to correct that a little bit and really kids just want to know they're good and they are mm-hmm. yeah, and i think kids just want to know that someone loves them right especially their own parents um yeah. you know our our son is only two but i i'm starting to see those small like outcries of hey i just did something i'm not supposed to and you told me not to do but i still want to know that you love me yeah. You know, even again, even like as a two year old, like he's like, again, like he's, he's seeing the world this way and he just wants to know like, Hey, like I know I'm misbehaving, mm-hmm. but I still like want to be all over you because I just want to make sure that like you still love me. That reassurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 He'll hit me in the face, <laughs> like literally hit me in the face and then I'll like, you know, correct him and he'll be like, sorry, mama. And climb into my lap and I'm like, Oh it's okay. a question. Yeah. It's a Sorry, question. Mama. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It is. It's the, are you still with me? Are we yeah. still good? Are we still That's good? That's that even secure, I just... secure attachment mm-hmm. building. Even though I just hit you in the face, do you still love me? 
I just I don't know if it helps, but just know that the hits in the face, you're building the secure attachment. So oh there's no truly doesn't there's make nothing, it easier. There's nothing more triggering than being hit in the face. I, I, <laughs> it's really, really hard. We have yeah. the same thing with mm-hmm. Letty mm-hmm. with ours. It I don't know what within me, but like it just everything within me just wants to scream. And oh, die. it's all about the face. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of human like contact yeah. is like to be to be dishonored in the face is like mm-hmm. the, biologically is the most triggering thing. Yeah, that's where we make our connection. Yep. Yeah. Well, with a few minutes we have left, I'm going to read something to you, Preston, and you let me know if this uh, sounds familiar at all. <laughs> Life raises the most difficult questions about God and our world that is possible to ask. While the answers are not always clear, the questions are richly worth asking. Flourishing and joy are always possible. What does that mean? <laughs> for this well, first, car seat questions podcast. You have to summarize <laughs> that for us. So what does that mean? Mm, well, I think it means, you know, something something I uh, often say, something I often say to my students, and I've found myself saying it, and I really do believe it. I continue to believe it more and more is that um, theology and the Christian life, I don't think ever have been or ever really should be, you know, historically and also from, from experience has never really been about certainty. Um, it's always been about surrender. It's always mm-hmm. been about cultivating, cultivating a heart that's open to God. That's our problem. We're closed to God and God wants a heart that's open to him. Mm-hmm. That's what he wants more than anything. And we have so many defensive ways of, closing it off because it's a lot safer. It's less painful to live Mm -hmm. with a closed heart, but it's also less alive. Mm. And the answers to these questions, we're not guaranteed them, but I do know that I don't like hanging out with people who don't have the integrity or the moral hunger or the intellectual hunger to ask those questions, to Mm. feel like Life has not beaten me down so much that I'm not going to have the integrity and honesty and joy of asking this question, even if it's painful. So it's that kind of Job sense of like, mm. though you slay me, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to, I'm going to wrestle with you like Jacob with the angel until you bless me. Mm. Um, that kind of, and I think God loves that. I know he does because Jesus is always talking about that in his parables. Mm-hmm. He's talking to Nathaniel and saying, I really like you because you you just said nothing good comes out of my hometown, but I saw you earlier over by the tree. So gotcha. And, <laughs> you know, it's very playful and it's very yeah. subtle mm-hmm. and it's very like, I think God just loves really honest and bold, bold dispositions um, that aren't protective, but are open. Mm-hmm. I mean, Peter, like God loves mm-hmm. people who put their foot in their mouth. So, you know, we should never be afraid of asking the questions. We won't get the answers. So that's not the point. Yeah. Um, you know, the flourishing and the joy are really are always possible. And I think that that's at the heart of it, right? Is living with a closed heart actually isn't, it's actually a way of um, avoiding pain. Mm. It reminds me of that proverb. Um, um, a, let's see, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life a sense of hope being deferred. Like some people are just so sick of being disappointed. They Mm -hmm. like to self-sabotage and 
you know, if life's just going to keep disappointing me, I'll just go ahead and shut down my own desire. Cause yeah. then that's a lot easier, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. cause, but it's not risky and it's yeah. dishonest and it's not, it's subhuman. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it's just that playful sense of, I am more committed to, I'm more committed to life, even if I'm not guaranteed it. I'm more committed to the pursuit of it than my own safety. But those are the people we all gravitate toward. Those are the people that change our lives. Those are the people that are infectious mm-hmm. with goodness. And I think that's why I say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you say to your kids. It really doesn't matter as much what you say to your friend who's going through this or to your spouse or to yourself or wherever you are in it. Um, what matters is the posture of your heart in it. Um, is there a way you can be a little less, just a little less humble, non-anxious, open? Um, you'll be that much more on the right side of things. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Appreciate you sharing all of this with us and sharing your time and your heart and even part of your story. Oh, yeah. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I can't uh, I can't really put into words how like just edifying this is right. Well, that's a word people don't use a lot these days. Edifying. Um, just like it's, how it might be eddy, edifying. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark that. Um, yeah, it, this, yeah, I can't explain. I can't describe enough how like this has been truly edifying for me again, as a person, um, who is, you know, gone through this firsthand mm-hmm. and to be able to dialogue with someone who is not, just educated but you have Mm. also experienced uh this sort of thing and so again who who better to talk to um with this you know than you um dear friend of ours um and i think that plays a lot into it even though uh we're not in the same space you know but the fact that i believe our relationship to christ keeps us together doesn't matter like how far away we live from one another so i just want to say that i'm so grateful for you um and what you've shared with us today um and with all of our episodes we like to end with a benediction um so if you would join us to him who is able to do far more than we can understand may he give us the wisdom to raise our children to first love god above all else and love others as themselves go in peace